Chapter 2 Population The central guiding theme that must run through all considerations of history is the question of population, and there is a difference here between future history and past history. In past history, the people were there and the historian watches what they did. In future history, he has to start with the more basic question of what people will be there. The question as to which peoples survive in the world during the march of the ages is fundamental and must override all questions as to whether future man will be better or worse than present man, or whether he will rise to heights we cannot conceive or sink to levels we should despise. The fundamental question is survival, and this must never be forgotten, but by itself is entirely unsatisfying because we do want to make judgments of quality about our descendants. In this chapter, then, I shall first of all deal with general questions about population, but towards its end, I shall return to some of these interesting questions of quality. It must be insisted, however, that though these have much more appeal than has the fact of survival, they are secondary to it, because it is only the races that survive that make the history. It is always necessary, and it is indeed quite surprisingly difficult, to keep in mind that the fundamental quality pertaining to man is not that he should be good or bad, wise or stupid, but merely that he should be alive and not dead. Therefore, the first thing that must be asked about future man is whether he will be alive and will know how to keep alive and not whether it is a good thing that he should be alive. Whether we like this fact or not, it has the advantage of providing an objective basis for the study of future history, which simplifies things a great deal because it eliminates some of the danger of our forming prejudiced judgments. There may be endless arguments as to which of the individuals, A or B, is the more estimable member of a community. Tastes differ, and agreement may never be reached, but there is a far better chance of reaching agreement on the brute question of which of the two is likely to survive, whether it is in person or through his offspring, or by creating a successful polity for his community. These are objective judgments, and so they are likely to be free, or anyhow much more nearly free, from the prejudices which none of us can help having when it is a matter of making subjective judgments about human values. The primary question then arises, what are the conditions 
which determine whether a man will survive or not. In the case of animals, there is a great variety in the threats that determine their survival. Some are attacked by beasts of prey, some by parasites, some by pestilences, while some whole races of animals have been destroyed by catastrophes, such as the submergence of land under the sea. But all without exception are subject to one overriding condition, the danger that they may not get enough to eat. This gives rise to yet another threat to the survival of the individual animal, the competition between the different members of the same species for limited supplies of food. Man can rise superior to most of the threats that affect the rest of the animal kingdom. He can dominate the largest and fiercest beasts of prey. He has already learned how to control most of his parasites, and through medical science, he is even learning how to control the most deadly of all, the bacteria of disease. While if his land is drowned under the sea, he can take ship and sail away. There remains for him one condition that he still shares with the rest of the animal kingdom as a perpetual menace to his life, and this is the need for food. Here again, there arises the competition for limited supplies, whether it is a competition between man and man, or between man, or between nation and nation. And for humanity, this competition assumes far greater importance than it does for any of the animals, just because, unlike them, he has succeeded in overcoming so many of his other enemies. It is this competition that will determine the detail of history, in the sense that it will determine which men and which races will survive. But deeper than this, there lies the question of how the survivors are to keep alive, and the finding controlling condition for this is their supply of food. It is food that in the end determines the population of the world. During the past century, many writers have discussed the question of population, and they have naturally been chiefly concerned with the conditions of the present, of the recent past, and of the immediate future. Here, however, I am not concerned with a century or two, but with a million years, and for this it will suffice to go back to the founder of the study of population. A hundred and fifty years ago, Malthus wrote his essay on population, in which he drew attention to the conflict between the law of biological increase of the human species, which is a geometrical progression, and the law of increase in the area under agriculture, which can only, roughly speaking, be an arithmetical progression. Man must always be outrunning his food supplies. Malthus himself, and others after him, tried to devise ways of escape from this threat, but it has never been really disposed of, 
and it has only escaped the predominating attention it deserved through the accident of the history of the 19th century. It was verified that the increase in population tended during that period to be in geometrical progression, but the development of the New World and the establishment of railways and steamships to carry its products to the Old World had unforeseen consequence, for that the best part of a century the cultivated areas could increase at a rate greater than the population. Malthus's first principle was shown to be correct, but his second was vitiated by the quite exceptional conditions of the 19th century. This era is probably now nearing its end, and the difficulties he expounded must be faced. There are no doubt many who are not familiar with the argument of Malthus, and so it may be well to describe how it works out numerically. His first hypothesis is that there is a natural rate of increase for any species of animal. And if one thinks, for example, of a cow producing one calf every year for, say, five years, it seems a very reasonable hypothesis. The rate certainly varies very much from one species to another, and the increase is restrained in nature by all sorts of checks, the chief of which is shortage of food. But Malthus assumes that for any species, there is a natural rate of increase which would operate in the absence of these checks. We can estimate fairly well what this rate is for humanity by the experience of the last century in these islands, for during the time the main checks on natural increase were removed through the importation of food and improved sanitation and the population was quadrupled in the century. There have been corresponding increases in many other countries of Europe, Asia, and America, but not all on quite the same scale. So I will take a cautious estimate and assume that the natural rate of increase for man is that he should double his numbers in a century. It may be mentioned that these estimates are all well below some of the values that Malthus himself quotes. Now, look at the other side of the account. The present food production of the world is roughly about enough to feed the population of the world. This is almost a truism, for if there were not enough, the excess population would have to die, and if there were too much, the excess food would simply be wasted. If the natural increase of population is to be met, more food will have to be produced, and this can be done to some extent by improving farming and by bringing more land into cultivation. There is nothing unreasonable in saying that the food production of the world could be doubled or trebled 
but it is rather hard to see how it could be raised more than ten times on the present methods of agriculture. But it is very possible that these methods could be improved out of all knowledge, and for the present argument, I am quite ready to grant that the food production of the world could be increased a thousand times above its present level, even though I do not believe it possible. But there is no need to stop even there, for there is the vast area of the ocean which we hardly exploit at all at present. Here again, I do not believe that any enormous increase could come out of the intensive cultivation of the sea. But for the sake of the argument, I am ready to grant it, and to take a figure beyond what anyone is likely to think possible. I will assume that the total food production of our planet might be a million times what it is now. Now bring these two sets of figures together. If the population is doubled in a century, it is only three and a half centuries before it will be ten times its present number. And this would exhaust what I have estimated as the possibilities of the existing systems of agriculture. Keeping on at the same natural rate of increase, the population will have increased a thousandfold in ten centuries. And even if new agricultural methods should permit the production of a thousand times as much food as at present, there would by then still only be just enough food to support the population. And a thousand years is a short period even in the span of known past history and quite insignificant when counted on the scale of a million years. Again, a population that has a natural rate of increase of a thousandfold in a thousand years will increase a millionfold in two thousand years, and so at the end of that two thousand years there would be need of the enormous quantity of food of a million times the present amount. It is evident that no increase of food production, however fantastically imagined, could cope with the natural increase of mankind for more than a very small fraction of a million years. The whole argument is hardly, hardly affected even if the natural rate of increase has been much overestimated. Though experience is all against it, suppose that the natural increase of mankind would double the population in a thousand years instead of a hundred. The only effect would be that it would take 20,000 years instead of 2,000 years for the population to multiply itself by a million and 20,000 years is still a very short span compared to a million years. All these figures illustrate the general principle familiar to the mathematician, which may be expressed 
colloquially by saying that it is quite impossible for any arithmetical progression to fight against a geometrical progression. To summarize the Malthusian doctrine, there can never be more people than there is food for. There will not be less because man, like every other animal, tends to increase in numbers. There have been a few exceptions to the rule of man's natural increase, and a most important one, which will be examined later, is present with us now. But to a quite preponderating extent, the rule has held in the past, and there is every likelihood that it will continue to hold. The straightforward way of striking the balance is nature's method of creating an excess and then killing it off by plague or starvation. Malthus himself and other more recent writers also have attempted to propose solutions which should allow us to escape from this threat, but nobody has found one which is at all convincing. It follows that in the very long run of a million years, the general course of future history is most of the time likely to be what it has been for most of past time, a continual pressure of population on its means of subsistence, with the margin of the population unable to survive. There is no escape from the fact of the finiteness of the amount of food that the earth could produce. But Malthus's first hypothesis, that there is a natural rate of increase of man, is much more likely to be questioned. It may be an oversimplification to take the rate as fixed, but it is indisputable that animals given favorable conditions, do rapidly multiply to fill the vacant spaces of the world. The same has been true of the rather slow-breeding animal, man, and it has been confirmed by the last century when for a time the threat of food shortage was removed in some countries. Indeed, this period has had the curious consequence of allowing people to forget Malthus altogether, since the increase in agriculture outstripped the human rate of increase for a time, and so drew attention away from the problem of population. Our insight into the matter has further been confused by the fact that at the present time we are threatened with a decreasing population in England, and indeed in many of the countries inhabited by the white races. This is a very important phenomenon indeed, and it seems to contradict Malthus's principles. It will be the subject of a later chapter, but the matter must be regarded on a worldwide basis and not just as one of Western Europe or North America or anyone who has, for example, visited India, will get a very different impression 
and one which is juster. Thus, not long ago, the province of Sind was mainly desert. The ground was quite fertile, but there was no rainfall. A great engineering undertaking, the Sukar Barrage, has spread the waters of the Indus over a very wide area and turned much of the desert into a garden. According to the universally accepted standards, this was a great benefit to the world, for it made possible the adequate feeding of a people previously on the verge of starvation. But things did not work out like that, for after a few years, the effect was only to have a large number of people on the verge of starvation instead of a small number. This is not the place to raise the moral issue of whether the world is the better for having the Sukar barrage or not. From the point of view of population, it has had the effect of increasing somewhat the already great importance of the contribution of India to the population of the world. It must be accepted that the objective fact of survival is more fundamental than any question of the quality of the surviving life, good or bad, and this consideration gives a color to some of the happenings of past history, which is rather different from the color in which they have often been presented. To illustrate the point, I will take an example. We are all shocked when we read accounts of child labor in the factories of the early 19th century, and we can all agree that the conditions in many of the factories were terrible. But how did it come about that, as soon as there were factories needing labor, the children were there to undertake it? The most reasonable explanation is that in the previous generations, most of the children simply had to die in infancy, and that it was the factories that saved the lives of the new generations. For long ages, the world had got used to a very high death rate of infants, and took it for granted that this was an inevitable law, and now suddenly it was found that the law was not inevitable, and that the infants did not have to die. It was the factories that saved all these lives. All too many, it is true, for only a few years, but still many did grow up. And since it is life, and not no life, that counts, the factories might claim to be benefiting the world. In saying this, I do not, of course, in the least, want to condone the system, which sometimes exhibited a monstrous cruelty on the part of selfish employers who were enriching themselves at the expense of the unnecessary sufferings of their fellow creatures. Still, in weighing the question up, there should be counted on the positive side the fact that quite a large fraction of our present population would simply not be in existence at all now 
if there had been no factories a hundred years ago. I have already pointed out that though the availability of food is the fundamental question for mankind, there is also the important question of the competition for, it, for that food between men and between nations. It will be those who are successful in the competition who will make up the population of the future, and so it is the qualities that lead to this success which will determine the course of future history. The consideration of these qualities is therefore naturally the main theme of the present work, and they will be studied in the ensuing chapters. In the remainder of this chapter, I shall try to deal with certain arguments about population, which I suspect may be present in the minds of some of my readers. In looking at past history, they may have been accustomed to consider that one of the important things to do, as it is certainly the interesting thing to do, is to assess merits in the personalities of their histories, and they will not be content to believe that a cold counting of heads is really more important. I do not in the least want to oppose the making of judgments of this kind, and indeed I shall be making many myself, but here I want to establish the point that, just because they are judgments of the past and not the future, many of them are irrelevant to the subject. Most people are much more interested in quality than in quantity, and they may argue that there have been many cases where quality has proved itself more important than quantity. They may say that in the course of past history, a numerically small race of high quality has often been far more important than a large race of low quality. This has been true in the past, and no doubt it will often be true again, but take it by itself, the judgment accomplishes nothing. When it is said that a small race was often more important than a large one, it sometimes means that this race, in consequence of its high quality, achieved success in life in such a way as to become fruitful and multiply, so that in fact it later became a large race. Rome, in its early days, is a typical example. It is not important because of its smallness, for that would imply that the rival city of Vi was equally important, but because it ultimately became large. We do not especially admire each of the villages of Latium just because one of them grew into an empire, and we do in fact value the little Rome only because it became the great Rome. In the march of history, every institution has a small beginning, but it is the whole of its history and not the beginning that must count in the assessment of its value. 
so that in such examples as this it is irrelevant to emphasize the smallness. There is a second, very different sense in which it may be said that there are numerically small races which are more important than large ones. For example, there is the group of a few among the Athenians of the classical period who made important contributions to knowledge and art. The number concerned was extraordinarily small and their era was very ephemeral. But their enormous contribution to the richness of the world is indisputable. Such contributions are undoubtedly among the most important things in the world, but they are nearly irrelevant in the present context. There have been innumerable small city-states whose earlier histories were indistinguishable from that of Athens, and it is only after the event that we can discriminate Athens from them. For future history, our enthusiasm cannot be expended on all these innumerable little states. We should only be justified in doing so if we could hope thereby consciously to create something like a new Athens. A study of past history does not encourage this hope. Most of these flowerings have occurred in association with the rather sudden acquisition of wealth by a race, wealth often won by the conquest or the commercial exploitation of neighbors. But the converse has not been true, since such wealth has frequently been gained without any efflorescence of the arts or sciences. In fact, these efflorescences are what, by my analogy from physics, I have called fluctuations, representing occasional extreme departures from the average. If it is going to be hard to do anything in the way of controlling the average history of humanity, it is going a fortiori to be very much harder to control its fluctuations. To indulge in a flight of fancy, imagine that a world dictator considered that the only really important thing was to have a new school of painting as great as the Italian or Dutch schools. How should we go about creating it? To judge by ha past history, he would not succeed by founding learned colleges of art with elaborate provisions for competitive scholarships, but rather by creating a thoroughly turbulent world full of struggle, warfare, and injustice. In this world, here and there, cities or countries would arise, which would, through the ability of a few of their citizens, their Medicis or their Amsterdam merchants, attained a very unequal share of the world's wealth. By the time two or three dozen states of this kind had come into existence, there might be a faint hope that in one or two of them, 
there really would have arisen simultaneously patrons with the taste of a Lorenzo and painters with the genius of Tidian or a Rembrandt. Altogether, it does not seem likely that the world dictator would be very successful. If this is really the most important thing for the world, it does not seem likely that we can do much to bring it about. These examples from the past, where we can be wise after the event, give little help in suggesting how the qualities of the population of the future are to be judged. Survival is the essential factor in the making of history, and it must certainly have first place. But most of us want to know much more than this about the qualities of the survivors. What line should the historian take in making judgments about these qualities? It would be a tenable, tenable view that his duty is coldly and objectively to observe what happens, noting merely that such and such a population flourished at such and such an epoch, and holding that it was not for him to comment, either favorably or unfavorably, on the qualities of the population. If the future is regarded as a quite uncontrollable unfolding of events, then a cold account of it, free from all moral judgments, would be an admissible policy. The only important thing in such a view would be the purely objective question which at some epoch the surviving population was and what was the character of its life, even if it had degenerated to something very much lower in the animal scale than anything we have at present. But even for the immutable past, most historians do not follow this method. They do pronounce judgments, though nothing they can say can alter what actually happened. And most of us accept this very definitely as the best way to write history. If that is so for the past, how much more is it so for the future? For though our control of the future is certainly very much smaller than is claimed by the optimists, still some control does exist. To some extent, we may aspire to give a direction to the development of the world. Historians of the past have usually taken some broad idea as a guiding principle in their account of past events, and there has been a good deal of variety in these ideas. To one, it will have been the material conditions of a people that is of chief importance. To another, their political institutions. A third will be inspired by their philosophic or religious thought, and a fourth by their military exploits. Another will trace the history of a broad general idea like the development of personal liberty, while others have, perhaps unconsciously, imbibed the tenets of some long-dead, narrow political party 
and have judged the events and the personalities of their historical period by that standard. Every historian must be allowed to have some guiding principle of this type as a background for his history, and I am entitled to claim this right for myself, since I have been emphasizing the fundamental position of the question of survival, it might be considered that I ought to refrain from all intellectual and moral judgments about the future members of the human race. It is simply impossible for any human being to pursue such a course because his whole life has been colored and conditioned by the habit of forming judgments of this kind. Even if I tried to do it, it would not be possible for that reason. But, guided by the examples of the historians of the past, I would not wish to do it. Though the matter of survival is fundamental, still it is permissible to show preferences between different ways of surviving. For example, some highly successful modes of life, such as that of the parasite, would not be regarded as admirable, no matter what human standard they are judged by. Now the chief natural qualities of man, which distinguish him from other animals, are that he is simultaneously an intelligent and a social animal. And both these qualities tend towards success in survival, the one for the individual, the other for his tribe. Both are qualities which are admired at any rate by the majority of us, some putting intelligence first, others the sense of social duty. Therefore, insofar as it is possible to look beyond the brute question of survival, and to make subjective estimates of value about the future human race, I shall rate as admirable any improvement that in the course of the ages should develop in the intellect of mankind, and any improvement in his sense of devotion to his fellow man. A combination of the two qualities is best of all, but if it is necessary to select between them, I should assign first place to intelligence, if only because it is a more distinctive characteristic of the human race than the social sense, which after all man shares with many other animals. In studying past history, it is only possible for the historian to take what did happen and either approve or disapprove. In future history, the historian is not so limited. He may not only approve or disapprove, but he may also hope. I shall hope, most of all, that the surviving races of man in the long ages to come will increase still further in intellectual stature. End of chapter 2